Venerable Master, Dhamma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. It's uh, the 29th of June. We're here in Berkeley, California, Saturday night. And uh, we're going to invoke the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas of the Flower Garland Assembly. But before we do, I'd like to invite all of you to turn your heads around and look at what I'm looking at. And it's not Valerie walking in. It's not that. But it's the colors. We have dragons here on the balcony facing. We have Bodhisattvas here on the wall. Roberto is bathed in pastel light from the uh, stained glass. And this is what it's like this time of the year. And it stays this way. Uh, it'll be this way. You see, it's still going up as the sun sets over the Golden Gate. And uh, it stays this way until probably about close to 8 o'clock, and then it's all gone. And uh, it only does this in, in early summer. And then the sun is... Uh, was down sooner, so we don't get it this time of night. But it's quite wonderful to have uh, the presence of colored light shadows. And there is a time, and there are some people who don't like incense smoke. They uh, feel that it's an affront to their civil liberties somehow. But the, uh, when the incense smoke is in the air and it interacts with this color, colored light, it's quite wonderful to have multicolored clouds right in the middle of the, the Buddha. Hall. So, what a blessing. So if you would please, the front cover of your text has the name of the sutras, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and we'll chant that in Chinese uh, seven times and invite their presence here. Namo Dafang Gampo joining us online from wherever that might be around the world, no exaggeration. Um, this webcast out quite a ways, and uh, we hear bit by bit from folks uh, uh, around the block who decided to stay in front of their computer tonight, and people in Australia and uh, in China who are tuned in to us. It's Dharma Realm Live. Dharma Realm Live is the, we're now on YouTube streaming. And also, the text that we are finishing tonight and about to begin tonight as we move through is also available at berkeleymonastery.org. berkeleymonastery.org. You can find the uh, 
the uh, Chinese and English PDF of the text we're going through. And this happens only through the efforts of lots of hands and hearts, our, our tech crew, uh, all volunteers, all folks uh, who decided to put their time into bringing the Dharma to, to others. So appreciate that effort. Um, further, uh, we have a translation into Vietnamese going on here in the monastery. And uh, that's a very analog. Somebody's ears hear what I say and they speak another language. That's a real skill. And not everybody can do that. I'm, I'm one of those people who can. I've got a couple sets of wires somehow in my makeup. And the uh, first time I had my palm read by a palm reader 40 years ago, somebody said, oh, there are two of you in there, you know. <laughs> I have double, two? What do you mean two? Multiple, you know. I have double everything, and in some cases, three, my wires. And don't ask me why, but I, I'm able to hear one language and come out with another one and, and, and keep it running, not, not get stuck in either one. So um, on one hand, it's a gift, I guess. On the other hand, uh, when I'm just not translating, I've got to subdue one of those voices or I go crazy because I've got... Somebody commenting on everything all the time. So uh, anyway, one of those talented people is translating into Vietnamese at the moment. And and, uh, ideally, as things go on, we could have a a Mandarin translator. Um, The technology that we have now allows us to actually uh, give people the option to click on the live stream and hear, hear the language of their choice. Uh, we're working on that up at City of 10,000 Buddhas. So if you want to hear what's being said in Vietnamese, you click on the link and there's somebody sitting on the side happily with a microphone translating on the spot, Chinese, Cantonese, Taiwanese, Spanish, Italian, whatever you'd like. Um, here in Berkeley, we're doing with two languages tonight, but as the need arises, uh, and as the conditions manifest, we could have more than more than two, which would be wonderful. All right. Uh, would you please turn in your check, text to page 26 and 27? Um, I need to say that tonight, <coughs> because of tomorrow's schedule, we're going to finish at 9. We're not going to go on to 9.30 as we usually do. Um, I have to get up very early in the morning and head off north. Um, have to be 100 miles north by 8 a.m. So um, we're going to stop at 9 so I can do the preparation I have to do for what's going to happen tomorrow, which includes a wedding, happily enough, and also a class in the afternoon to the monks, in this case, who are on their way to becoming uh, fully ordained bhikshus and who want a a class in speaking dharma. And we have the services of Brian Conroy, who's going to co-teach. Many of you know Brian here. Brian is a uh, storyteller, professor of folklore, uh, middle school teacher, Storyteller Supreme, and uh, tomorrow will be a trainer of monks in 
the basics, elocution, how to make sound, how to uh, raise your voice without straining it, how to whisper in a way that people can hear it, how to uh, use your face, how to use your muscles in public speaking, the basics, the physical basics, and then how to hear stories in preparation for telling them. If you can't hear stories, you won't be able to retell them. Um, and then the uh, um, what makes a good story? Uh, how do you um, bring stories that are very old to life in a way that new minds, new ears can hear them fresh? So these are all skills that a good speaker of Dharma needs. And uh, you might even say that moms need these skills to teach their kids. Teachers need these skills to train their students. Friends can use these skills to, to uh, enliven their friendships. The skill of storytelling. We have an excellent storyteller here with us tonight who we're going to hear from later. He's, you have to listen carefully because he's got a thick Australian accent. But he tells stories that uh, come from another place and another time. So get ready for that. So we're on the third paragraph on page 26 and 27, and our texts have just grown by one ground. Before this morning, before this afternoon, they stopped there, but they've been amplified. They have been uh, nourished. So now we have the fifth ground stuck on there. They're going to grow and grow as we progress. So that's progress. Third paragraph, we're going to start with the Chinese, and we'll, um, I'll give it to you once, and you give it back to me. These are verses, so we give it a melody, we give it a tune, and um, let me say one more thing here. All of the, the paraphernalia around this lecture the request of Dharma, the bowing that I do beforehand, the meditation that I do before I bow, the uh, formality of sitting here in rows, the, uh, the way we introduce the text, we re- open it, we request it to be opened, we invoke the presence, we have the, the, uh, the text in, in various languages. All of this is designed to open our minds deep. All of this, as I say, paraphernalia, all the formality, all the ritual is supposed to have an effect inside you, inside me. Why is that? The words in the book that we're looking at were first spoken 2,500 years ago. That's probably older than anything you met today or this week or this year or maybe in a lifetime. This may be the oldest thing you touch in your whole life. And yet, it's also ageless. To say it's old is is kind of a linear measurement, right? That doesn't tell the whole story. This is our Master Hua, uh, our teacher, our founder, described it as a mirror. It's a mirror whose purpose is to show us our true mind. We're supposed to look into this, not supposed to. What happens that people report is they look into this text and they see themselves. 
but you see yourself at another level. Not just the face you're wearing now or the name you carry, names we carry, but we're looking deeper at a place where we grew from. And with the help of the sutra, it's a place we return to. And if we do all the paraphernalia, all of the, the preparation with an attitude of respect and uh, lightly but um, with an intent, with an intention, then looking in this mirror has reflections. It resonates. You see it your way and it resonates and you go, oh, I connect. You see it your way and you go, oh, I never saw it that way before. That makes sense in a whole new way. The reason being, we're going deeper than we have gone before, depending on how we prepare. And if our minds are really quiet, and if our attitudes are really respectful, we can go very deep indeed. And this, this mirror shows us things that we hadn't imagined possible. And yet, what is it? Just an old book. And it's just your mind. But the point of it is to map, to serve as a map for our minds, because we're on a journey going deeper into our own wisdom than ever before. Okay? So that's, that's the idea. And we have reduced this, the, the paraphernalia, the, the preparation, to a minimum. Um, there are some ways of doing this. You don't get to touch the text for half an hour every time because you're all, you can really get stuck in that stuff. Uh, and it can obstruct the actual experience of looking in the mirror and making connections. But that's, that's the point of this. And to the degree that we are quiet and sincere as we prepare, that's the degree that we have this resonance happen where we just go, go, oh, wow, oh, wow. You know, you, saw, you used to see that finally connects. And you could think of it vertically that we're going deeper into a kind of the root of human experience. And the deeper we go, the more fundamental it becomes. It's the deeper understructure that brings in wider and wider roots. You know, if you're halfway up the trunk, you can only support some of the branches. But if you go really deep, you've got the whole tree. And so this is that root understanding of principle and experience that reintegrates, makes a bigger piece out of all the scattered branches, just reunites it into this whole, and it's all accessible. So you can imagine what the Buddha must be seeing, right? When he has no obstructions to that connection with the roots and going out to the multiple branch tips and bringing it all back and being able to explain it in, and then bring it all back. So that's, that's what this is about. And... Uh, that's kind of a, you could say a justification, but the, uh, my understanding of why we, we do the palms together and the requesting and the, you know, the sitting still. So, all right, let's, let's do that. So I'm on the third stanza, the third paragraph. 此地菩萨人众生, 人众生, 
Your turn. Alright, over to the right, let's do it together in, uh, in unison. Here we go. This grounds Bodhisattva is supreme among humans. He has made offerings to limitless Nayutas of Buddhas. Upon hearing right Dharma, he also leaves home and is as indestructible as pure gold. All right. This is the fourth grounds, Bodhisattva, the awakened being. The grounds are stages of learning, stages of training. And they're progressive, so we're finishing the fourth, we're on our way to the fifth. And here at the end of the fourth stage, this fourth ground, the Bodhisattva is still a human, he's a person, but he is supreme. She is supreme. Switch the pronoun if you prefer. Supreme meaning uh, outstanding, not the same, not ordinary. Mm. Why is that so? It's because she has made offerings to limitless nayuta, nayota in Chinese, nayuta in Sanskrit means a big number, many, just translated as many, has made offerings to many limitless numbers of Buddhas. For me, brand new idea, making an offering to a Buddha was something valuable. I never knew that. It didn't occur to me. Um, we didn't make offerings to God as Methodists. I guess we kind of did. It wasn't overt. We praised. We, we said God was good. Um, but to make an offering to a Buddha is something that comes up a lot in the sutra. Kind of. Okay, or, or what was the second choice? Statues, images, yeah. Well, both. Um, the Buddha, the historical Buddha in our, you know, in our memory, 2,500 years ago, Shakyamuni Buddha, Siddhartha, the Prince Siddhartha, isn't here. He's passed on. So as much as you might want to make an offering to a real Buddha, we can't. So... You say we don't get to know? We do. And the answer is both. Okay, why? Okay, good question. Connie's question was, are, you make, are these bodhisattvas making offerings to actual Buddhas or are they making offerings to images like this one here, like the one on the wall behind Buddhas? My answer is both because why? They're the way the Buddha described time was Buddhas, plural, lots of Buddhas come and go. They come, they teach, they enter nirvana. They come, they teach, they enter nirvana. They come and teach in nirvana. Different Buddhas come in a long line. So a bodhisattva, let's say, you know, could that be you, could it be me? If we are here when the Buddha's in the world, we go find that Buddha and offer him food, flowers, fruit, 
Mm, a million dollars. Keys to a BMW. You know, he might not take the BMW. A Rolex wristwatch. You know, he'll definitely take the watch, look at it, and hand it to someone and say, limitless merit and virtue. You know. Who needs a Rolex on your wrist? Everybody looks at it and goes, oh man, Wait till he's just, I hope he leaves it in the bathroom because I want that. You know, take, you know. Greed. It incites greed. So we give the Buddha, what do we give to the Buddha? We make offerings of robe, definitely useful. Medicine when you're sick, definitely useful. Food and shelter, dwellings, you know, a sleeping bag, a tent, uh, a palace, a monastery. Those are said to be the four appropriate offerings of shelter, food, medicine, and uh, drink. Food and drink, medicine, bedding, housing. So when the Buddha's in the world, you do that. Okay, now what happens to that Buddha when he goes to nirvana? He's not around anymore. The second time period comes. It's called the, the Dharma image age. Right? The first is the proper Dharma. Buddha's alive, make offerings to him. Dharma image age comes. Can't get to the Buddha, but you have these images. You look at them and you go, yeah. I remember that feeling when the Buddha was in the world and I could like stand in front of him. I was buzzing. Imagine what it's like to stand in the presence of somebody who's got no coverings, no obstacles over their nature. They're just radiant. You know. Well, they're gone. But I remember that feeling and we have the Dharma, we have the stories. So let's connect with that image. You make an offering to an image. Okay. That period passes, the Dharma ending age, where we are now, since the Buddha left. And we have, I mean, our teacher's gone, but we have this picture, you know, here's Master Hua's picture. We have that. And we go, yeah, I remember being next to my teacher. And did I make an offering to him? Yeah, I did. All he wanted me to do was like, straighten out my mind. That was the offering he kept wanting, and that was the hardest one to give. Because habits are hard to break. Um, so we made offerings to the Dharma image age. A new Buddha comes in the world, you make offerings to his person. Two more periods, you make offerings to the images. So both is the answer. Okay? Right? And some, hold on a second. Keep your question in mind. So some people um, have, uh, there's the stories go on forever. I'll give you one really good one. Um, the famous king. Ashoka. There was an Indian king whose name was Ashoka. And he lived 200 years after the Buddha's nirvana. He was a murderer. He was a bloodthirsty tyrant. He, the stories about the way he uh, killed and enjoyed killing go on. He was, he was really brutal. Slaughtered hundreds and thousands of people. And then he um, his wife or sister, do you remember? How does it go? One of his female relatives, who was it? Wife, uh, became a, a nun. She had religion. She was a, a wholesome person. She became a nun, and he saw her, and he, she had an implement that was from the Buddha's time, 200 years earlier. King saw his wife in the garb of a Buddhist nun, and there was something, I forget the whole story, there's something about this golden pin that she had that, that went back to the time of the Buddha. And something happened to him. 
And he went into battle against the Kapila country and slaughtered thousands of people, went out in the battlefield and just his mind cracked. And he said, this is evil. This is terrible. This is, how can this happen? This is demonic. I'm scared that having killed so many people and caused so much suffering, what's going to happen to me? I got to stop this, he said. And on the spot, converted from an evil, bloodthirsty killer to a kind-hearted monarch who then went on to establish all over India game preserves where nothing died. He made, uh, he, well, what did he do? Did he, not all of India, but he, he turned big chunks of India into places that, where nothing could die, nothing could be killed. Uh, you know, great game, game reservations. He established these pillars all over not just India, but as far as China, as far as Persia, as far as, as uh, Greece. It, wherever his armies went, they became armies for peace. They established these pillars with carvings on them saying, be good to your parents, right? Treat all beings with respect. Uh, love your neighbors. He, King Ashoka has these teachings about interfaith where he says, if you call yourself a faithful believer, in your religion, but you look down on other people, you have turned your back on your own religion. You know, he's incredible wisdom and kindness from the guy who was the mass murderer. He flipped it around. Why? Because he saw in the Dharma image age somebody who was a Buddhist disciple. That's all it took uh, for have him wake up. So there's a really dramatic story of somebody waking up, right? And he was alive in the the after the Buddha. So when we when we uh, encounter those um, images, likenesses of the Buddha, if the conditions are right, that's all it takes. So here's our Bodhisattva making offerings to limitless Nayutas of Buddhas, whether they're in the world or whether they're after. Okay, Kevin, what was your question? You're going to have to speak up a little louder. I can't quite hear you. What if there are Buddhas in the world and they stay quiet? Then it mean what? And what if meaning then you can't hear what they say? You mean or what? Okay, uh, the question is, if okay, okay. So Kevin's question is, what if there's um, there are Buddhas in the world who are kind of undercover Buddhas? You know, they're they're hermits. They're cultivating in a cave somewhere, or they they live in a basement apartment in Upper Harlem, and you know, uh, they live in a condo in the, the marina and never come out except on Saturday to go to the Safeway. You know. And so, if, if there's a Buddha like that, then what do you do? Do you make offerings to them? Well, um, according to what I know, if a Buddha comes into the world, um, it's not like an accident. There's, it's every step along the way is preparation to when the Buddha appears. Like, you know, let's look at our historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, right? 
he was in the palace living a really nice life. He went out into the city and saw an old person, a sick person, a corpse, and then a monk and woke up, went out six years of cultivation. Here is now the Buddha. Okay, so every step of the way was necessary. It was a slow process. When he became the Buddha, they say, he spent 30 days to make up his mind whether he was going to teach at all because his temptation, what he thought was, I'm not going to bother. Nobody is going to get it. It's too difficult. He almost didn't talk at all. But then the, God, the story goes, right? This is how the legend goes. The gods came down and said, you've got to talk. People are suffering. You've got to try it. You have to teach. So he was convinced to start teaching by, by Davis because he was almost ready to like pack it off, you know, go into nirvana now and not, not bother. So that's interesting. I mean, our own Buddha, who we talk about, the Buddha, almost wasn't a teacher, but he was in the end. So finally he goes out, he starts teaching, he meets the first five monks, they say turns the Dharma wheel, you know, and then he, 49 years he taught. So um, it's not by accident that somebody becomes a Buddha. So by, with your question, are there people who are kind of quiet and not teaching? Possibly, yeah. But in, a, in another way to look at it is everybody is a future Buddha. All right, so you're a future Buddha. You just why aren't you a Buddha now? Well, you have to cultivate. You have to do the work of cleaning out your greed and your anger and your delusion. And so do I. Um, l- look at line three. Upon hearing the right Dharma, he also leaves home. So this is the first time, and we're on ground number four. This is the first time we've heard a mention of a Bodhisattva being a monk or nun. So let me take your question and expand it. Could there be a bodhisattva sitting right beside you tonight? Yeah. You know. <laughs> Are you? you know. Would you tell me if you were? You know. <laughs> so you don't know. The person sitting right beside you might be a bodhisattva. Or let's bring it a little closer. The person sitting across from you at the breakfast table might be a bodhisattva who's there to cross you over. <gasps> oh, man. I gave them so much trouble. I gave them that look every morning. You know, it's like, jeez, oh, and that was the bodhisattva who was there to cross me over. You know. So, you don't know, do you? Because the bodhisattva might not be telling you. So, on one hand, your question is really hypothetical. Could there be lots of Buddha? Yeah, there could be. But more than likely, it's the bodhisattva who is someone who said, I do want to be a Buddha, but... I'm going to teach before that. Everyone else can go first. I'm going to go last. That's what makes a bodhisattva so special. They're unselfish. So, you know, that's a good, that's a, that question has some actual traction. That might be the way it is. That the people closest to us could be somebody who's there to, you know, help us wake up. Or they could be, on the other hand, just a pain in the neck. You know, that's possible too. They might just be a rotten person. Chances are they're not. And even if they are, they can still help us wake up. So, who's a Buddha? Who's a Bodhisattva is a question. And like I say, potentially, if you look at the long run, everybody is a, a future Buddha. It's just a matter of time. Um, now, I know a lot of mm, evangelical fundamentalist Christians who, if I said that, would say, no way. I don't want to be a Buddha. I want to be an angel. I want to sit at the right hand of God. Well, that's 
I hope so. You know, I hope you get there. But we're talking theory, principle, and everybody has the potential for wisdom. Say it that way and it makes more sense. It's not that everybody has to become a Buddha and be a card-carrying Buddhist. You see, you know, not that. It's that everybody can wake up. And we do it step by step, progressively. So upon hearing the right Dharma, this Bodhisattva leaves home. Um, fourth stage Bodhisattva. And is as indestructible as pure gold. How indestructible is pure gold? One thing about gold is that if it's been... Um, we had, back in the prose section earlier in this ground, we had the image of a goldsmith who is smelting gold. And we talked about it. Remember the talk about Benvenuto Cellini? Master Dashing was happy with that, that analogy. He was a, a very Italian goldsmith, Benvenuto Cellini. And Benvenuto Cellini uh, was really good at gold. And the process, and I'm no expert, the process is you put it in the fire. Gold goes into the fire. And the fire has to be hot, and you have to know what you're doing. But you heat it up, and the gold becomes soft. It actually, you know, heat, gold has the property that heat will, will change its, its uh, strength. So it changes and something comes out of it. The, the dross, D-R-O-S-S, the impurities, the slag, the alum. What else is in gold? Somebody might know the chemistry of it. Stuff comes out of the gold. And strange thing is, the gold doesn't change weight even though something comes out of it. It just becomes more refined, more pure. And it gets to a point where it is called 24 karat gold. Nothing further will come out of it. It's been smelted to purity. All right? So if you have a gold, gold on your person, maybe a wedding ring, maybe a, 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 a brooch, maybe a, you know, um, what do people carry that's gold anymore? We used to say you used to have a tie tack at cufflinks. Anybody own cufflinks? Any guys? Cufflinks? You're old, guy. You're oldies, old guy. Phil, I'm sorry. You just said you're, you're dated. Cufflinks? Who wears cuffs? You know. White shirts. Our white shirts. Had, they doubled. You had to fold them back. You had to get them right. You put the cufflink in. And guys carried this jewelry around. And if there if was fancy cufflinks, you always <clears throat> made a point. <clears throat> Pull your sleeve back. The power cufflink at the meeting, you know, you just drape it elegantly on the table. So cufflinks, tie tacks. Anybody own a tie tack? Yeah, okay. Anybody own a tie? You know, right? So tie, tie tack. Could be gold. I know people who, in order to establish their pecking order as the alpha male, used to own golden Zippo cigarette lighters. Out comes the Zippo. Right? Gold usually with your name embroidered on it. Right? So guys don't carry gold anymore. If you were super ostentatious and really showing off, you had a gold money clip. You'd pull out your, you want to pay a bill, you'd pull out your dollar bills. And it's, you know. James Bond used to do that. Right? That's right. We're back into a whole new age. If you're a rapper and you're covered with bling and you're all blinged out, you've got gold in your hand. Right? Grills, right? Well, what do I know? Yeah. It's coming around again. So, 
So gold was something that we used to carry on our person to show our value, you know. Um, in uh, right this minute in this world, there are uh, cultures where the wife, um, in order to uh, show off essentially her her husband's wealth or her wealth, will wear uh, a lot of gold on her body full time. Around here, around here, you know, just because you have it, so you show it, and it's. It's a traditional way of showing your value. Gold, what makes it valuable? It's essentially rare. It's one of those elements that's hard to find. You have to dig it up. California is one of the places where it came out of the ground. So we had the gold rush of 1849. History students, you can mark that down in your notebook. Why do we have 49ers as our football team? 1849, gold rush. Many, many, many Chinese folks came from Fujian and Guangzhou all the way over here to find the gold. So, um, gold is hard to find. It's rare. When you find it, it doesn't look like anything. It's not the case you pull a gold ring out of the, the earth. You pull this filthy kind of thing, you know. But you put it into the fire and out comes something that you can turn and I seen Benvenuto Cellini's salt cellar, C-E-L-L-A-R, meaning salt dish. Benvenuto Cellini's salt dish looks rough. I was so surprised. Fine gold. The, the story is in the Louvre in, in Paris. You go look at Benvenuto Cellini's salt cellar, and it's like it's not fine. The gold itself is fine. It's masterful work, but gold is still an elemental metal, you know. And he's pounding on it with a hammer, and I was. I expected something, you know, kind of very uh, nifty, and but it's it's got rough edges. So when you when you're building something that large, so um, that's why gold is valuable because it's hard to find. There's only a certain amount of it, and when you work it, it does something special. There are people who genuinely have gold fever. You look at that stuff, you can't put it down. There are some people who are who look at gold. Their eyes turn red. Their pulse elevates. They're maybe they're you know they start to salivate. You know, now you just want it. You want it. Um, so that's why gold is mentioned in the sutra. Here it is in the Buddha Sutra. Gold, indestructible as gold, meaning put it through the hottest fire. It's not going to change anymore. Heat won't change it. So the bodhisattva is indestructible as 24 karat gold. Moving on here. Pusa zhu ci ju gong de yi zhi fang bian xiu xing dao bu wei zhong mo xin tui zhuan pi ru miao bao wu neng huai. The bodhisattva dwelling here has merit and virtue. Using wisdom and expedience, he, she cultivates the path. In spite of hordes of demons, his mind does not retreat. The way a wondrous jewel cannot be dimmed. Anybody want to ask about that verse? What what pops out coming to mind? 
whatever's going on with your throat is <laughs> preventing me from hearing a word you're saying. Say it again. Where is he dwelling? Okay, good. <coughs> me too, I've got him. That's not what I thought you were going to say. I thought people were going to pick up on the hordes of demons. Too many monster films, too many horror films. So Connie's question was, the Bodhisattva, where is he dwelling? Okay, dwell. The Chinese, look over to the left here. Third word in, zhu. Zhu, it, it doesn't have to be translated as dwell. Dwell is a funny choice for, trans, for that word. It just means staying. When the Bodhisattva stays in the fourth ground. Dwelling, we think of address, we think of front door, we think of bedroom and kitchen. It's not, I mean, it could be to dwell. Where do you dwell? You know, I don't dwell, I live somewhere. Oh, so dwelling, we're, as we retranslate this, we're examining every instance of dwell and seeing if we can't change it to something that people actually say. When the Bodhisattva stays here, that's, where is here? Fourth ground. When the Bodhisattva is in this level of training. Think of it in high school when the Bodhisattva is a sophomore. When the Bodhisattva is a senior about to graduate. Okay. When the Bodhisattva stays there, he or she has these wonderful qualities of character, merit and virtue. Someone who you look at them and you trust them. You look at them and something in you goes, oh. you, want it. you look a little longer. They're not just a face you go right by. Why? Merit and virtue. Somebody who you say, I would... I would vote for you. If this were an election, I'd vote for you. you know, or lead, I'll follow. Because you trust them. You, you, don't, you don't think they're going to lead you wrong. Using wisdom and expedience, he cultivates the path. Okay, that's real Buddhist jargon language. Translate that into words that people say. He cultivates the path using wisdom and expedience. Look at that. That's all... That's all code language, isn't it? What does it mean? It means that this bodhisattva values the invisible parts of life. Like what? Well, how about imagination? How about stillness? How about mm, humor? Show me humor can't see it, doesn't, doesn't have a weight or a velocity, but who wants to go through a day without laughing? Okay, those are the invisible parts of life. That cultivates the path. The bodhisattva pays attention to the physical side. He's not uh, how do you describe somebody who um, so the, the bodhisattva is in the world. They live just like you and me. They eat, they sleep, they dress, they work, they exercise. But at the same time, they, the bodhisattva does more than that. They can be quiet with themselves and not check their email for it hours on end. Try that, Mr. and Mrs. IT person, right? So, anybody got that? I mean, like, you know, you're in a conversation and you just check just to see if your phone is giving you a notice that you've got email waiting. 
this bodhisattva can be quiet. Just be quiet. We had a young man come in this week, and we told him about the Oregon trip. We told him that we're going camping. And he is a 15-year-old, and maybe hasn't been camping before. He lives in Richmond. He's uh, a city kid, grew up in Berkeley. And uh, we were telling him about the fun of camping out in the woods. You know, really fun. He was going with it. He was listening. I had him, almost had him. And then I said, now, there's no cell phone reception, which means there's no internet. His face went... <laughs> lost him. <laughs> Not expedient. I shouldn't have said that. I should have said, you know, he's... It'd go right into uh, Reedsport, and you got a choice of lots of bandwidth, and you know, never mind that Reedsport's twelve miles away. You know, but. so yeah, we're. Um, it's hard to be quiet, and that's not a joke. Um, we had a uh, a movie put together, a DVD, a video put together of our monasteries. This was kind of an informational DVD on our larger Buddhist community. Somebody reported on the Berkeley Monastery, on San Francisco Gold Mountain, on City of the Dharma Realm, Sacramento, all the different monasteries. And the, it was, it's a group effort. There's a Canadian branch that did Vancouver and Calgary, and they did Seattle too. There's a, an Asian branch that did Taipei, Kaohsiung, Taichung, Hualien, etc. The person who did the Bay Area editing um, clearly drinks too much coffee and probably is under 25 years old or maybe 26, raised on MTV. You remember MTV. And as a result, every frame sits in front of you for about one and a half seconds before it cuts to the next frame. So it goes, cut, 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 like that. And my eyes are just focusing on what the picture is, and it's gone. And I'm looking, it's gone. You know? And I'm thinking, wow, this is someone whose nervous system is actually different than mine and probably everybody my generation. There, there has been an actual change in the synapses of our bodies and minds as we watch TV. How many hours have we sat in front of the TV? Well, if, you're, if you've done it in the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's different than people who were watching TV 30, 35, 40 years ago. I was born in the year that television came out, believe it or not. How ancient am I? And I was explaining this at Roundtable the other night. When my family had a black and white color TV, the picture tube was about this big. It was round, or actually octagonal. And there were three channels, and you had no choice. That was what was on, you know. And what are you watching? I'm watching TV. TV was the Reynolds aluminum metal. Reynolds metal brings you, what was it? Hallmark, not Hallmark Theater, that was Hallmark. Reynolds, and there was that. There was Howdy Doody, there was Kukla Fran and Ollie, there was the, uh, I've already forgotten. So 
that was, that was it. And, and the camera would focus in on an interview and it wouldn't move. And you'd have the host and the guest being talking. And news, the news, would, the guy, with the announcer would be there, you know, and the camera would sometimes slowly pan like this. But it never jumped. And then I left home, I stopped watching TV. But occasionally I would sit in front and MTV was famous for quick cuts. Boom, boom, boom. And the first couple times I watched it, I actually had a physical reaction. I had to close my eyes and, and leave the room because I couldn't, I felt under attack from the speed of those cuts. Something told me that was not good for me, you know, because it was disturbing to have my brain be, be pinged so many times, right? And yet, if you grew up with that as your norm, that was normal for you, what you did was you adapted to the TV. Your nervous system just took that in as the way things move. Patonk, 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 patonk. And it became normal, right? When I looked at it, I thought, that's wrong. Some, that's disturbing, you know. Because I was used to steady cam, you know, like that. So whoever edited our video, you know, grew up in that generation. And I honestly can't watch it. It's really, it's like, I think it's disrespectful to the Dharma, for one, because here's the Buddhas, here's the Bodhisattvas, here's the teacher, here's the monks. It's like, what, what, what? Maybe somebody is picking all that information up. Honestly, I tell you, I think it's, it's a generational thing because I have trouble with hip-hop lyrics. I can't quite take in rap lyrics. And I know there are people who are, who are getting it. I mean, I, I really like hip-hop when it's done you know, somebody with intelligence. And I can't, I can't get it, it's too fast. So maybe it's not only pictures, it's also sound. So um, anyway, the point of this is um, when you cultivate the path, if you have been absorbing pictures that change, blink, 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 when you turn that off and go meditate, there's a period of time when you have to shift gears or you'll never meditate. You have to be willing to downshift. <laughs> Silence. What does it say if we have a generation of people, not just say young people, people who, when they sit still, can't be quiet? They sit still, and something fires. You know, fire, fire, boom. What's it going to be like? As because it's not going to stop. We're not going to suddenly slow down our rate of screen refresh. You know, what's it like if you try to sit and you can't be still because you're firing too fast? I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe it's not a problem. But it strikes me that when you finally get away from media. There's a major cold turkey phase that has to happen before you can be still. And if you can't be still and like the bodhisattva, cultivate the path with wisdom and expedience, you're never going to find your mind. You know. You're never going to be able to tune in. I don't know. I'm, I don't mean to say that young people will never cultivate, but I imagine it's a challenge. Anybody want to 
What do you think? Is that is am I on to something or not? Is that bogus? What do you think? He doesn't like it when the TV's not on. Yep. You're so weird. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There we go. Yes, Connie. It'll be like songs. Uh Have you ever tried to swap over to to Guanyin's name? To let that be the song? I heard that face. No. Right? Try that. If you that's why, you know, we're one reason why we're we're doing Buddhist music is so that I mean I'm someone who has lots of music in my head. And if it can be a sacred name, I'll take it. You know, but yeah, yeah. There's a gearing down. Roberto, or no? Was it Phil? Okay, Phil. ADD, <laughs> attention deficit disorder. Running. Yeah. It couldn't be that you're slowing down, could it? <laughs> yeah. 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 Was were there count the Starbucks in the neighborhood? No joke. In the Hong Kong airport there are three of them. One airport, three Starbucks. Yeah. So yeah. So Roberto's reporting people moving faster. Yes, comment. Okay. Sure. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um so I ask for people's reactions to the lines here. And what's, what's your name? It's again, what is it? Jeannie? Janine. Denise. Denise. Yes, Denise? Did I get it right? Janine. Jenny. Spell it. J-U-N-I-T. C. J U N I C. Spell it. J U N I C E. Oh, good. That's a nice name. I, I don't. I haven't heard that name before. Junice. Okay. So Junice's question was, um, line three. In spite of the hordes of demons, the mind does not retreat. Does this mean that when the bodhisattva, let's say, gets bad news, they have lots of tools? Or methods by which to deal with it. How do they deal with it? Right? Is that the, your question? Is that your question? Okay. Like bad news. Like what? What kind of bad news? Like somebody died. Okay. Um, 
so in, to answer your question, I have to speak for bodhisattvas, and that's hard because I'm, this is we're we're talking theoretically. Um, how so? When we get bad news, let's say something that creates stress, or is really bad news, you know, they have a a a, uh, a ranking of you know zero to ten on the bad news scale, on the life. What what do they call that? It was the um, trauma scale or something. And uh, death of a close loved one was up in the 10, you know, 9 and 10. Um, life-threatening illness. Doctor says, I'm sorry to tell you this, 9 and 10, you know. Uh, beloved pet dies, 8 and 9, you know. Um, so on that scale, let's say some really bad news arise. How does the bodhisattva handle it? And so I can give you a theoretical answer. It, your first question was, does, is that what this means, that his mind does not retreat from the hordes of demons? Kind of yes, but kind of it means other things too. Hordes of demons, I, I was thinking that people were going to pick up on that. And we have had this, this word in the Chinese is chung mo, the many mo, demons. Demons, that word is a, it's a very heavy kind of taboo word. Not a word you use lightly, because why? If we come from a uh, Judeo-Christian, Bible-based framework, then demon is specific. Demon and devil kind of cross over into the same thing. And if it's an who that is on, in the Bible's story is Lucifer, also known as Satan, right? Many other names, Old Nick, the devil, the devil made me do it, you know? Um, and typically we see him uh, with a pitchfork, horns on his head, he's, he's colored red and he's got a tail. And, and uh, then we go from there to possession, Right, possessed by demons, and we think of the uh, the movie The Exorcist was back in my generation was like uh, this movie that many many people saw that was horrifying. There was a scene where this young woman, this young girl, is possessed, and her head turns all the way around 360 degrees, and she vomits out all kinds of vile stuff. And really, it was that was a shocking image. And that's demons. So the Buddhist. Mm, equivalent of that is not Satan, the God's opponent who has a pitchfork in his red. It doesn't exclude that, but it's much more nuanced. So hordes of demons, let me um, point to, we're, we're getting to your question, but let me, let me point to this. Um, if you know the story of the Prince Siddhartha, right? He spent six years cultivating, 49 days under the Bodhi tree, where he said, I'm not leaving here until I wake up, he said. And he did. So the last part of that story, they say, when it really got right down to it, um, they say the demon king, Mara, is his name in, in the Buddhist story of it, M-A-R-A. Mara sent, uh, they say, his daughters, to seduce the prince to see if they could 
keep him from becoming the Buddha. And very compassionately, he didn't, he wasn't moved by them. And in fact, he showed them their, their need to cultivate themselves because death was coming for them too. And if they're using their physical beauty to confuse him, what about when that beauty is gone? You know, when impermanence comes and they, they no longer look, uh, you know, fashionably beautiful, then what then? So he showed them that they have to think about their future as well. They have to do what he did, wake up, to see that this inevitability of old age, sickness, and death. So they retreat. And Mara goes, curses, foiled again. And then Mara says, all right, we couldn't seduce him. Let's scare him into quitting. Sends the soldiers. And here comes the army. Thousands and thousands of fierce fighters with fangs and thunderbolts coming out of their eyes. And they throw their best weapons at him. And, and the Buddha's going, you can't scare me. And he says, I've seen my mind. Nothing scarier than that. And, uh, you know, I've already died to wealth and fame and sex and food and sleep. He says, you know, like, bring it on, you know, can't scare me. And all of the weapons, the, the arrows and the spears, turn into lotus flowers. And Mara goes, curses, foiled again. So you can't seduce him, you can't scare him. The next thing that happens, and if you saw Little Buddha, Bertolucci's film is really well done. Here's Keanu Reeves sitting under the tree, you know. Keanu Reeves is a pretty impressive Siddhartha. There's a, that, that movie took a lot of flack, but it wasn't so bad, especially this scene. So he's sitting there, and, and Mara wells up out of the ground. So here's face to face with the demon. And who does the demon look like? Keanu Reeves. It's his own, he's looking at his own image. So the last echo of ignorance, he's looking at his own mind, right? And Mara says, who says you're enlightened? And Siddhartha goes, the earth is my witness. And he touches the earth and leaves come down and and Mara goes, curses, foiled again. And he just kind of vanishes. The Buddha wakes up. All right, so there's a Buddhist version of Satan. And I like the third one because why? It shows that demons arise in the mind. There is an external demon, but the one, the scariest one is the one that, that looks a lot like us. You know, What do you do with that? Well... Symbolically, if you've ever studied psychology, it says that we have good and evil in our own minds. You know, We have the potential to be horrible, nasty, greedy, angry, deluded. And we have the potential to be kind and compassionate, wise and skillful right there in our minds. So which one are you going to cultivate? That's, that I like because why that empowers me to make my choices. It's not somebody doing something to me. It's not God's will. It's what I choose is what I become. That, I can believe in that. That makes sense. All right. So, the hordes of demons there, let's use the, the prince's story to, to fill this out. It's things that can seduce me into forgetting about cultivation. Can things that can frighten me away from doing what I know I should but is hard, you know? Both of those could be demons. On the other hand, they're just 
stuff of life. Okay, now to your question. Junisa's question is, is this talking about when bad news comes, how does the bodhisattva deal with it? You could say that. Um, that would be a, a real-life translation of this. Bad news probably doesn't make it to the level of demons, necessarily, right? Because demons, the, the Mara, it means killer, murderer. And in my experience, uh, although the Mara, the, the, the demon king that was there to obstruct Siddhartha in the movie was kind of a cinematic demon. In fact, what did he want to do? He wanted to stop the Buddha. He really wanted to stop the Buddha cold. He didn't want to be, have a competitor for power in the realm of good and evil. And he was trying his best to, to stop the Buddha. But the Buddha's gung fu, his own wisdom and his compassion, was thorough and bone deep. And so his strength matched the demon's strength and he didn't move. He was able to come up with it. The demon was not playing. It wasn't script lines in a script. He was trying to stop him. When a demon comes to you to say, stop cultivating, um, they really want you to forget your Bodhi resolve. They want you to forget suffering and think that going to Las Vegas for Christmas vacation is a really good idea. It's really going to be fun this year. It's going to pay off. You know, that this, is, this one is my lucky roll. I'll double my bet. <laughs> That's the demon at work, telling you to forget your wisdom and to try lady luck. Luck be a lady tonight, you know. And she abandons you, she's fickle, and you're out your money, you know. So um, that's demon, it's, that's really heavy duty, real demons. They're, they're, they play, if, if you're, in terms of cultivation, Master Hua would say, um, you have to be really sincere before you need to worry about demons. If we're just ordinary cultivators, just kind of, you know, weekend cultivators, and the rest of the week we play by the marketplace rules, and on the weekend we play by the monastery rules, then never mind. We're, we're thoroughly trapped in the Buddha's, in the demon's nets. There's a wonderful verse that I like. It goes, Mo shi mo zhen dao. Zhen dao cai you mo, mo de zhen guang liang. So there's a lot of mores in that verse. So. But the demons polish the real, the true path. The more you polish, the more they polish, the more you need shining. Polish until you shine in empty space like the crescent moon. And... When the crescent moon appears, the demons all vanish before the light. The demons polish the true path. Only when your path is true do the demons come. So if we're kind of cultivating back and forth and still making up our mind whether we want to eat a lot of meat or, or go vegetarian, you know, whether we want to drink a little bit of wine or maybe stop drinking wine, you know, it's like, that's okay. We're, we're still in the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's you won't, you won't meet the demons. They wouldn't, they're not going to waste their time with us then. 
the demons polish you until you get re you really shine. If you're actually cultivating, you get lots of tests. Lots of tests come. The bad news arrives. How do you deal with it? All right? Guang liang, geng yao mo. And the brighter you get, the more you want to be polished. In other words, the tests come, they're good. Don't think that the presence of demons is a bad thing if you've really made the Bodhi resolve. Why? Because they push you over the line. They push you to success. Guang liang, geng yao mo. Mo de ru chou ye. You get polished until, like the crescent moon in autumn, the, the light shines and you see the demons for what they are. If you see a shadow, shine a light on it. Light and shadows don't coexist, or light, darkness doesn't coexist. Shadows do, but the darkness goes in front of the light. Once the demons retreat, your own, the Buddha of your own nature appears. So, all right, so that's demon talk. Let's get back to Junis' question. When bad news comes, let's say it's not a demon, for sure, for sure, the bodhisattva brings out their toolkit. You know, all right, let's not talk bodhisattvas. Let's talk moms. Okay, mom has a baby. The baby is, you know, a terrible two. Okay, which is, you ever had a, a baby between age one and two? Terrible. They cry a lot. They demand to be picked up. You have to go to work, they cling to your leg. You know, you take them to work, they turn the workplace into a, sh you know, a screaming zoo. And the boss says, don't bring her back tomorrow. You know? But what do you do? You can't leave her, you can't take her. You know? And she throws her food, or he throws his food, and everything is no, no. Kids between one and two learn the word no, right? They start to individuate. There are actual changes in their chemistry. No, no. And they're really hard to live with. And you think you tempt, you know, you never, you have thoughts you never had before, which is, I wonder how this baby would look splattered against that wall. You know, no, I shouldn't do that. That wouldn't be right, would it? You know, throwing the baby against the wall. Not a good idea. Did I have that, just have that thought? Shame on me, you know. And then the kid makes you want to, bash their brains out. Terrible twos. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one who knows this? Come on. Why does the monk know about terrible mm. Kids, the terrible twos are real. Get ready, new moms, you know. Whew, boy, I've, I've been through that and uh, you don't know what to do. They drive you nuts because they will not stop crying and it's really tough. And then magically they get past that and they're sweet and you pick them up and they're, you know, they're fun to be with and they're through that crisis. So what do you do? The mom needs real patience. And if you, I've seen moms who have that skill. Um, if you've been, where do you encounter kids acting out? Grocery stores? Um, restaurants sometimes? Um, You've been, you know, in a public place where a kid was doing that, just pounding and screaming and kicking, and they they don't want to be stopped. And little babies can be very strong, and their voices are very resonant, you know. And so I've seen moms who, in the midst of this, when you who have no relationship with this kid are thinking bad thoughts about squashing the kid, you know, or choking him to death, and the mom just goes, "Oh, okay, uh, here, you know, like that." And the kid goes, and you go, 
way to go, mom. You know, that was really skillful. Who have, moms who have infinite patience, who always have a way to get beyond the issue that the kid is trying to power struggle with and come around from the side and totally disarm the kid and life goes on, you know. I've seen moms who do that and it's like, wow, that's amazing. That's Kung Fu right there. That's the Bodhisattva's Kung Fu. So, you know, is, are those demons necessarily? No. It's what do we cultivate? Um, Master Hua would say cultivation is about subduing your own bad habits and faults. So the way he interpreted it, we think, oh, if I could cultivate with Master Hua, that must be wonderful. We're always talking about enlightenment and we're always discussing psychic powers and, you know, bodhisattva's principles. Not a bit. Well, occasionally. More often than not, Master Hua would take you down into the, the gutter of your own greed and your own jealousy. He would show you where your mind is full of kinks and knots and ter- twips and and fears and you know you're always coming face to face with your own limitations around the teacher why because he was some sort of you know person who got a kick out of making you suffer no he wanted you to get to buddhahood as quickly as possible if you have a strength you don't need to cultivate that by cultivating your weakness and showing you where it is, and then pulling that thorn out so that the pus can drain and so you get back to healthy, that's the fastest way to Buddhahood. Master Hua would always take us to the place where we couldn't bend any further, and he would bend us a little bit more out of your comfort zone, and then say, it's okay, have a cookie. It's all right. And you go, I didn't realize I could do that. Yeah. And if you'd respond with anger or with you know frustration or something, you go, "Oh, no problem. Come back later. You know, we'll try again later." Filling in the gaps and bringing back the excesses—that's the way to Buddhahood, fastest way. If he praises you, you don't have to learn that. You already know how. So it was not comfortable being around a teacher that. Basically, becoming a Buddha is conquering your fears. Correct. For sure. And you don't think you have them? Master Hua would show you something to be afraid of. And then he would shine light on it. You go, it's only that. I thought it was something else. Okay, example. Kids. We think about kids who are afraid of something under the bed or something in the closet. And we go... You know, it's like, come on, what's under the bed? For that kid, they know what's under the bed, and it's scary. You know, you tell a four or five, six-year-old, there's nothing under the bed, and they go, look, please look, I can't look, look for me. You know, they have a flashlight on their table just in case, you know. So that's a real fear. An adult looks at that and goes, there's nothing under the bed. What's the adult's fear? You grow up another 20 years. The adult's fear? That letter from the bank that says, uh, due to a decision of the board of directors and according to the statutes of the state of California, we have repossessed your home. 
The adult's fear is the roof's going to be taken away and you won't be able to provide. For a guy, major fear that you are not a provider, that you can't protect your family. Why? Because of powers beyond our control, we have decided that we are going to take your house away from you. You know, that's another kind of scary fear. The kid doesn't fear that. He doesn't, can't imagine it, right? So the fears grow as we age. It's not that they go away, but bit by bit. Okay, we're on the fourth ground. On the first ground, which was a year plus ago, the Bodhisattva faced the fivefold fears. And that was where, you know, we met this. So those fivefold fears are real. And you're right, Kevin's right, that it's by facing our fears that we cultivate. In the end, okay, the prince under the tree. Should he be afraid of somebody coming to kill him with arrows and spears? You bet. Those, that's in the movie, Little Buddha. When you get a chance, it's on Netflix or go rent it. Or something. The, the armies that come to, to kill the prince under the Bodhi tree are scary armies. They're worth anybody in their right mind seeing this army bearing down on them would be afraid. He's going... Kill me, what, so what? I've already given it all up. There's nothing, you know. I've already acknowledged that I'm dead to everything the world says is good. You know. So. Okay, what if you tried to conquer your fears but you couldn't? Does that keep you from becoming a Buddha? All right. In my experience, um, Fear, there's always something else to be afraid of. Uh, what do you do if you get to a place where you can't handle it and you still need strength? Where do you go? Where I go, I recite Guanyin Bodhisattva's name. You look for help. Right? Bully comes up to you on the playground or in the hallway or on the telephone. What do you do you call your big brother. Come beat him up. If you don't have a big brother, all right, what do you do? You call the police, you know. You uh, uh, find somebody big who will back you up. Traditionally, that's, that's where you go. In the real world, if when I am faced by something that scares me and that happens regularly, I recite Guanyin's name. I actually... I don't recite Guan Yin's name as much I recite the Great Compassion Mantra. And I have learned in my own experience that Guan Yin Bodhisattva is listening. And that's a lot of strength. But does like Guan Yin come with a, a Glock automatic pistol to like mow down my enemies? No. Guan Yin Bodhisattva comes into my mind, shines a light, and shows me that I don't have to be afraid of that. It's only that. What's the scariest thing? Probably death, right? And if you're standing on principle and you know you're right and you think, well, if I'm going to die, then I can't stop it because it's going to happen. My karma brings it to me. If I'm not supposed to die, I won't have to, so stand there, you know. And Guan Yin comes and removes the fear and kind of shines a light. Most of the fears in the world are born of darkness. We can't see. And you shine a light on us. Oh, that's what it is. I looked under the bed. There's actually just some dust in my shoes. No, no, no monster under the bed. 
I looked in the closet. There's nothing there, really. But you have to go look. And when you put the light on it, oh, it's only that. You know, fear goes away. I think big fears are the same way. But you have to have somebody shine that light. Guanyin Bodhisattva's name, I experience as light to remove my ignorance of what it really was. Oh, it's just that. Okay. So, the way a wondrous jewel cannot be dimmed. How does a wondrous jewel not be dimmed? Well, anybody got a, you know, we, we, had, we talked about gold cufflinks and tie bars and, and Zippo lighters. Anybody carry a ring? If you're married, maybe you have one on your finger, some sort, of some stone, you know. What have you got? There you go. Bright, right? Shiny. I can see there's light coming off your finger, you know. So, and, you know, somebody might be wearing a a big shiny thing. And it's a source of light. And the polishing, the facets of a gem, let's say it's a diamond or a ruby or an emerald or a sapphire, you know, a pearl, um, they shine because they, that, that's what they're meant to do. You polish it until it shines. So those jewels will not be dimmed. As long as there's any source of light, they will reflect. Um, so his mind becomes that way. The mind does not retreat. Okay, so I, I still like Janice's question. and we could, That could be the, the, the topic that we talk about for hours or days. But just to, to finish the answer... When troubles come, if the, if the mom is resourceful, no matter how the terrible two is acting out, spitting and kicking, she doesn't respond with anger. She's not afraid. She goes around the kids, you know, testing and finds a way to lead them away from whatever it is. And you go, that's a skillful mom. When does the mom say, I hate this kid, you deal with it? Never. You know, moms don't do it. It's their kid. And so that's the power of love, a mother's love. And it's an incredible force in the universe. And that's the bodhisattva. The mind doesn't go, living beings are just a mess. I'm gone. You know, forget that. They don't. They say, no, we're all going to wake up together by and by. It's just a matter of time. I need to hear more Dharma so I can find the way to get them to wake up. So that's why we bother to open this text. Okay, this is the mirror that we started looking in 90 minutes ago, and it shines our faces back to us. Sometimes we look in the mirror and it's like, I'm just way covered over. Other times we look in the mirror and it's like, I recognize myself. Look at that. It's amazing. So week after week we come back to this text. Look in this magic mirror of our own potential for awakening and the the ugly reality of where we let ourselves go from day to day. That's all part of it. So we've got three verses before the fourth ground is over and then we're on to the fifth ground. Let's um, transfer the merit for this and and
That's going to be too high to sing. So let's E. There we are. That's our pitch. May every living being, our minds as one and radiant with light, share the fruits of peace with hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity, may their minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave their grief and pain. May this boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise.